Chapter Six of the Mystery of the Locks by E. W. Howe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Chapter Six, Pictures in the Fire. Allan Doris was seeing pleasant pictures in the cheerful fire which burned in his room, for he watched it intently from early evening until dusk and until after the night came on. The look of discontent that had distinguished his face was absent for the first time since he had occupied the strange old house. Perhaps a cheerful man may see pleasant pictures in a fire which produces only tragedies for one who is sad, for it is certain that Alan Doris had watched the same fire before and cursed its pictures and walked up and down the room in excitement afterward with clenched fists and a wicked countenance. But there was peace in his heart now, and it could not be disturbed by the malicious darkness that looked in at his windows, for the nights were so dark in Davy's Bend that they seemed not an invitation to rest, but an invitation to prowl and lurk and do wicked things. When Mrs. Wedge brought in the lamp and put it down on the mantel, he did not look up to say a cheerful word, as was his custom, but continued gazing into the fire, and she noticed that he was in better humor than he had ever been before during their acquaintance. Usually his thinking made him frown, but tonight he seemed to be enjoying it. The worthy woman took pleasure in finding excuses to go to his room as often as possible, for he seemed to bless her for the intrusion upon his loneliness. But for once he did not seem to realize her presence, and he was thinking more intensely than usual. Mrs. Wedge had come to greatly admire the new occupant of the locks. That he was a man of intelligence and refinement there was no doubt. She believed this for so many reasons that she never pretended to enumerate them. Besides being scrupulously neat in his habits, which was a great deal in the orderly woman's eyes, he was uniformly polite and pleasant, except when he was alone, when he seemed to storm at himself. There was a certain manly way about him, a disposition to be just to everyone, even to his housekeeper, that won her heart, and she had lain awake a great many nights since he had come up to the locks, wondering about him, for he had never dropped the slightest hint as to where he came from or why he had selected Davy's Bend as a place of residence. She often said to herself that a bad man could not laugh as cheerfully as Alan Doris did when he dropped in at her little house to spend a half hour on which occasions he talked good-humoredly of matters which must have seemed trifling to one of his fine intelligence, and she was certain that no one in hiding for the commission of a grave offense could have captured the affections of Betty as completely as he had done, for the child always cried when he returned to his own room or went out at the iron gate to ramble over the hills and thought of little else except the time when she could see him again. Mrs. Wedge had heard that children shrink from the touch of hands that have engaged in violence or dishonor, and watched the growing friendship between the two with a great deal of interest. Mrs. Wedge believed that he had had trouble of some kind in the place he came from, 
and that he was trying to hide from a few enemies and a great many friends in Davy's Bend. For Mrs. Wedge could not believe that anyone would select Davy's Bend as a place of residence, except under peculiar circumstances. But she always came to the same conclusion, that Alan Doris was in the right, whatever his difficulty had been. She watched him narrowly from day to day, but he never gave her reason to change her mind. He was in the right, and in the goodness of her heart she defended him as she went about her work. Were it Betty's father come back to me instead of a stranger of whom I know nothing, the good woman would say aloud as she swept or dusted or scoured in her little house, I could not find less fault with him than I do, or be more fond of him. I know something about men, and Alan Doris is a gentleman. More than that, he is honest, and I don't believe a word you say. Grandmother, the child would inquire in wonder, who are you talking to? Oh, these people's tongues, Mrs. Wedge would reply with great earnestness, looking at Betty as though she were a guilty tongue which had just been caught in the act of slandering worthy people. I have no patience with them. Even Mr. Doris is not free from their slander, and I am tired of it. But who says anything against Mr. Doris, grandmother? Sure enough, who had accused him? No one, save his friend Mrs. Wedge, unless his coming to Davy's Bend was an accusation. But she continued to defend him, and declared before she went to sleep every night, I'll think no more about it. He is a worthy man, of course. But whatever occupied his thoughts on the evening in question, Alan Doris was not displeased to hear an announcement, from the speaking-tube behind the door, of visitors, for they were uncommon enough. And going to it, a voice came to him from the depths announcing that Silas and Tug were at the gate, and would come up if he had no objection. Pulling the lever down, which opened the gate, he went down to admit them at the door, and they came back with him. During his residence in the place he had met the two men frequently, for they took credit to themselves that he was there at all, since his coming seemed to please the people, for it gave them something to talk about, even if they did not admire him. And when he returned to his house in the evening, he often met the strange pair loitering about the gate. He had come to think well of them, and frequently invited them to walk in, but though they apparently wanted to accept his invitation, they acted as though they were afraid to. Perhaps they feared he would lose the little respect he already entertained for them on acquaintance. But they had evidently concluded to make him a formal call now, induced by friendliness and curiosity for they were smartened up a little, and it had evidently been arranged that Silas should do the honors, for Tug kept crowding him to the front as they walked up the stairs. Apparently Tug did not expect a very warm reception at the locks, for he lagged behind, and sighted at Alan Doris with his peculiar eyes, as though he had half a mind to try a shot at him and when he reached the landing from the level of which the doors opened into the rooms of the second story, he looked eagerly and curiously around, 
as if recalling the night when he traced the shadow there, but which had escaped him. Alan Doris invited both men into the apartment he usually occupied, and there was a freedom in his manner that surprised them both. The pair had decided to visit him from a curiosity that had grown out of their experience with the shadow, and although they expected to find him stern and silent and angered at their presence, he was really in good humor and seemed glad to see them. Perhaps he was so lonely that he would have welcomed a visit from a ghost. They both noticed that the ragged beard which he had worn on his face when he first arrived was now absent, for he was clean-shaven, and this made him appear ten years younger. He looked a good deal more like a man in every way than he did on the night of his arrival, when he sat moping in the hotel office. And Silas and Tug both wondered at the change, but they were of one mind as to his clean face. It was a disguise. Tug's suit of black glistened more than ever, from having been recently brushed, and as soon as he had seated himself, he set about watching Alan Doris with great persistency, staring him in the face precisely as he would look at a picture or an ornament. Silas seated himself some distance from the fire, and seemed greatly distressed at his friend's rudeness. "'I like you,' Mr. Whittle said finally, without moving his aim from Doris's face. Doris seemed amused, and, laughing quietly, was about to reply when Tug interrupted him. "'I know you don't like me, and I admire you for it, for every decent man despises me. I am not only the meanest man in the world, but the most worthless and the ugliest. My teeth are snags, and my eyes are bad, and my breath is sour, and I am lazy. But I like you, and I tell you of it to your teeth." Tug said this with so much seriousness that his companions both laughed. But if he understood the cause of their merriment, he pretended not to, for he said, "'What are you laughing at?' glaring fiercely from one to the other. "'I am not trying to be funny. I hate a funny man or a jokey man. I have nothing for a funny man but poison, and I have it with me.' Doris paid no more attention to his fierce companion than he would to a growling dog, and continued laughing. But Silas shut up like a knife as Tug took from his vest pocket a package carefully wrapped in newspaper, and after looking at it a moment with close scrutiny, continued, "'Whenever you find me telling jokes, expect me to giggle at my own wit, and then pour the contents of this package on my tongue and swallow it, and it will be no more than I deserve. I have but one virtue. I am not funny.' You have no idea how I hate the low persons who advertise themselves as comedians, or comediennes, or serio-comic singers, or you would not accuse me of it." Silas had often seen this package before, for Tug had carried it ever since they had been acquainted, frequently finding it necessary to renew the paper in which it was wrapped. From certain mysterious references to it Tug had dropped 
Silas believed the powder was intended for a relative more objectionable than any of the others, though he occasionally threatened to use it in a different manner, as in the present instance. Indeed, he seemed to carry it instead of a knife or a pistol, and Silas had noticed on the night when they were following the shadow that his companion carried the package in his hand, ready for instant use. "'You are the kind of man I intended to be,' Tug continued, putting away his dangerous package with the air of a desperado who had been flourishing a pistol and took credit to himself for not using it. "'I might have been worthy of your friendship but for my wife's relations. But I admire you whether you like it or not. Do your worst. I am your friend.' Tug had not taken his huge eye from Doris's face since entering, except to look at the poison, but he removed it as Mrs. Wedge came in to prepare the table for the evening meal. Doris was a good deal like Tug in the particular that he did not sleep much at night, but he slept soundly when the morning light came up over the woods to chase away the shadows which were always looking into his window. Therefore he frequently ate his breakfast at noon, and his supper at midnight. There was a roast of beef, a tea-urn, a pat of butter, and a loaf of bread, on the platter carried by the housekeeper, while Betty followed with the cups and saucers, and the potatoes, the napkins, and the sugar. "'I am obliged to you for your good opinion,' Doris said, while the cloth was being laid. "'And if you will remain to supper with me, we will become better acquainted.' It occurred to Silas that Doris looked at Tug, in spite of his politeness, as he might look at an amusing dog that had been taught to catch a bacon rind from off his nose at the word of command, and wondered that Tug felt so much at home as he seemed to, for he was watching the arrangements for supper with great eagerness.' Silas was sure the invitation to supper would be accepted, too, for Tug had never refused an invitation of any kind in his life, except invitations to be a man and go to work, which the people were always giving him. At a look from Doris, Mrs. Wedge went out and soon returned with additional plates, besides other eatables that seemed to be held in reserve and during her absence the master had been placing the chairs, so that by the time the table was arranged, the three men were ready to sit down, which they did without further ceremony. Among other things, Mrs. Wedge brought in a number of bottles and glasses, which were put down by the side of Doris, and these now attracted the aim of Tug. "'If you offer us drink,' he said, I give you fair warning that we will accept and get drunk and disgrace you. We haven't a particle of decency, have we, you scoundrel? This, accompanied by a prodigious poke in the ribs, was addressed to Silas Davy, who had been sitting meekly by, watching the proceedings. Tug had a habit of addressing Silas as his dear old scoundrel and his precious cutthroat although a milder man never lived, and he intently watched Doris as he opened one of the bottles and filled three of the glasses. Two of them were placed before Tug and Silas, 
and though Silas only sipped at his, Tug drank off the liquor apportioned to him greedily. This followed in rapid succession until two of the bottles had been emptied, Doris watching the proceedings with a queer satisfaction. He also helped them liberally to the roast beef and the gravy and the potatoes and the bread and butter, to say nothing of the pickles and olives. But Tug seemed to prefer the liquor to the tea, for he partook of that very sparingly, though he was anxious to accept everything else offered. For he occasionally got up from the table to tramp heavily around the room, as if to settle that already eaten to make room for more. Alan Doris enjoyed the presence of the two men, and encouraged the oddities of each by plying them with spirits. Although the drink had little effect on Silas, who was very temperate, Tug paid tribute to its strength by opening his wide eye to its greatest extent, as if in wonder at his hospitable reception, and closing the other tighter, like a man who had concluded to give one side of his body a rest. As the evening wore away, and the liquor circulated more freely through his blood, Tug recited, between frequent snorts, what a man he had been until he had been broken up and disgraced by his wife's relations. Silas, earnestly vouching for it all, besides declaring that it was a shame, to which their host replied with enthusiasm, that it was an outrage that such a bright man and such a good-looking man as Tug had been treated so unjustly, at the same time filling up the glasses and proposing that they drink to the confusion and disgrace of the relations. Neither of them seemed to realize that Doris was making game of them, for Tug listened to all he said, and he said a great deal, with an injured air that was extremely ludicrous, and when Davy related that when Mr. Whittle was in practice, the judges begged the favor of his opinion before rendering their decisions on difficult legal questions. Doris regretted that he had not known the judges, for he felt sure that they were wise and agreeable gentlemen. But at the same time Doris felt certain that if he should be invited to attend the man's funeral, he would laugh to himself upon thinking how absurdly dignified he must look in his coffin. Silas had never known Tug when he was great, of course, for he had flourished in the time of Silas's father, but he nevertheless believed it, and seemed to have personal knowledge of the former magnificence of the rusty old lawyer. Indeed, but few of the present inhabitants of Davy's Bend had known Tug when he was clean and respectable, for he always claimed that his triumphs were triumphs of the old days, when Davy's Bend was important and prosperous, and among the energetic citizens who had moved away and made decay possible. "'I don't amount to anything except when I am drunk, now,' Tug said, getting on his feet and taking aim at his host. "'But fill me with aristocratic liquor, and I am as cute as the best of them. Have you ever heard the story of the beggar on horseback?' Well, here he is, at your service. Will the rich and aristocratic owner of this house oblige the beggar by pouring out his dram? Ha! 
the beggar is at full gallop. Doris good-naturedly obeyed the request, and while Tug was on his feet, his aim happened to strike Silas. "'Silas, you greatest of scoundrels,' he said, "'you thoroughly debased villain, loafer, and liar, I love you.' Reaching across the table, Tug cordially shook hands with his friend, who had been doing nothing up to that time save enjoying Tug's humor and endorsing whatever he said. Whether Silas enjoyed being called a scoundrel, a villain, a loafer, and a liar is not known, but he certainly heard these expressions very frequently, for Tug seemed to tolerate him only because of his total and thorough depravity though the other acquaintances of Silas regarded him as a mild-mannered little man without either vices or virtues. "'I have but two friends,' Tug said again, seating himself and gazing stiffly at his host. "'Rum and Davy. Rum cheers me when I'm sad, and Davy feeds me when I'm hungry, though the splendid thief does not feed me as well as he might were he more industrious.' Rum has a bad reputation, but I announce here that it is one of my friends. I am either ravenously hungry or uncomfortable from having eaten too much all the time, so that I do not get much comfort from victuals. But rum hits me just right, and I love it. You say it will make me drunk. Very well. I want to get drunk. If you argue that it will make me reckless, I will hotly reply that I want to be reckless, and that a few bottles will make me as famous as a lifetime of work and success will make a sober man. Therefore I hail rum as my best friend, next to the unscrupulous rascal known for hailing purposes, when there are boots to be polished or errands to run as <gasps> Avy. The eminent legal mind hurriedly put his hand to his mouth, as though thoroughly humiliated that he had hiccuped, and, looking at Doris with the air of a man who commits an unpardonable indiscretion, and hopes that it has not been noticed, continued with more care, with a great many periods to enable him to guard against future weakness. "'Although I have but two friends, I have a host of enemies.' among them Tigley, my wife's cousin. When I was a reputable lawyer, Tigley appeared in Davy's Bend. Tigley was a fiddler, and spent his time in playing in the beer halls for the drinks. The late Mrs. Whittle believed him to be a great man. She called him a mastero, though he played entirely by ear, and excused his dissipation on the ground that it was an eccentricity common to genius. If Tigley ever comes in my way again, there will be something to pay more disagreeable than gold. He taught me to like rum. Silas, who acted as a kind of chorus, intimated to Doris that his friend referred to a word of four letters, beginning with an H and ending with an L. That's one reason why I am a drunkard the victim of too many relatives added, after a moment's thought. The other is that I could never talk up to the old women except when I was drunk, 
and it was necessary to talk up to her so often that I finally craved spirits. Tug crooked his elbow and produced the package from his vest pocket, which he waved aloft as an intimation that Tigley's nose should be held when they next met until he swallowed its contents. "'By the way,' Tug said, as if something new had occurred to him, "'I warn you not to believe anything I say. I lie because I enjoy it. Drinking whiskey and lying and loving Davy are my only recreations. Then there was Veezy Vaughn, the vagrant, my wife's uncle. He is responsible for my idleness. When he came here, twenty-odd years ago, I tried to reclaim him and went around with him, but he enjoyed vagrancy so much and defended his position so well that I took a taste of it myself. I liked it. I have followed it ever since. There was not the slightest animation about Tug, and he sat bolt upright like a post while he talked with slow and measured accent, to avoid another hiccup, and his great eye was usually as motionless as his body. The late Mrs. Whittle treated her relatives so well that other worthless people who were no kin to her began to appear finally and claim to be her cousins and nieces and nephews, Tug said, and she used my substance to get up good dinners for them. They came by railroad, by wagon, on foot, and on horseback. I was worse than a Mormon, for I married a thousand, at least, on my wedding day. Some of them called me Uncle W., while others spoke of me as their dear cousin T., but when the last dollar of my money was invested in dried beef and the relatives had eaten it, I protested, and then they turned me out. The relations have my money, and I have their bad habits. I have nothing left but the poison, and they are welcome to that. He once more produced the package, and as he laid it on the table, Doris half expected to see a troop of ill-favored people come dashing in, grab up the paper, and run away with it. But none of them came, and Tug went on. I was a polite man until my wife's relations made me selfish. We always had gravy when they were around, and good gravy at that. But by the time I had helped them all, there was none left for me. I now help myself first. Will the prince pass the pauper the fresh bottle of rum? The bottle was handed over, and the rare old scoundrel helped himself to a full glass of its contents, drinking as deliberately as he had talked, apparently taking nine big swallows without breathing, at the same time thinking of the one he loved the best as a means of curing the hiccups. "'I like Mrs. Wedge,' Tug said, looking at that excellent woman with a tipsy grin as she came into the room with some new delicacy for her employer's guests. "'She looks so common somehow, and I don't believe she knows any more about manners than I do. Whenever you see her eating her dinner, you'll find that she puts her arms on the table, as I do, though it's not polite.' Polite things are not natural, in my opinion. 
Mind, I don't assert it as positive. I hate cold water, but it's polite to bathe, and your respectable shirt collars rub all the hide off my neck. And anything that's good for me, I don't like. There's oatmeal and graham grits and such like. They are healthy, therefore I don't like their taste. But give me milk gravy or salt-risen bread or fried beef or anything else that's not good for me, and you'll find me at home, as the man who had the party said on his cards. During this discourse, Mr. Whittle's great eye was following Mrs. Wedge about the room, but when she disappeared it lit on Doris. "'I'm with the crowd, though, when it comes to my wife's kin,' he said, eyeing his host in an impudent way. "'A good many don't say so, but it makes them all hot to fill their houses with their relations. Whenever you go to see your relations, depend upon it that they are glad when you are gone. They may pretend to like you, but they don't, except when you are away from them. But in all other respects I'm common. Common! I'm so common that I like boiled cabbage, and the olives you blow about I'd as soon eat green pignuts soaked in brine. Common! He yelled out the words as though he were calling someone of that name in the cellar. If men were judged by their commonness, I would be a chief with plumes in my hat. Alan Doris and Silas Davy were seated with their backs to the windows overlooking the town, while Tug sat opposite them, and in transferring his gaze from one to the other, in dignified preparation for resuming his conversation, which both his companions were enjoying, he saw the mysterious face he had seen once before peering into the room, and which was hastily withdrawn. Tug jumped up from his chair at sight of it, and hurried to the window with such haste that the table was almost upset. But the face, as well as the figure to which it belonged, had disappeared. Throwing up the sash, Tug found that he could step out onto a porch, and from this he dropped into the yard with a great crash through the vines and latticework. Silas Davy quickly followed, by way of the stairs, suspecting the cause of Tug's disappearance, and Doris was left alone. All this had occupied but a few moments, and he probably thought of the circumstance as one of the many eccentricities of the two odd men, for after pulling down the lever to close the gate, it is a wonder that he was not surprised to find it open, he sat down before the fire and engaged in the pleasant thoughts that were interrupted early in the evening. Silas did not come up with Tug until he reached the vicinity of the hotel, where a single street lamp burned all night and while they were hurrying along without speaking, the figure they were pursuing passed quickly on the opposite side of the street from the hotel. The rays of the lamp were so feeble that the figure was only a shadow, but they easily recognized it as the one seen before, that of a man above the medium height, enveloped in a long cloak, not unlike those worn by women in wet weather, with a slouch hat pulled down over his face. The two men hurried after it, but in the darkness they were frequently compelled to stop and listen for the footsteps of the pursued 
in order to detect his course. Each time the echoes were more indistinct, for the fellow was making good use of his legs. And in this manner they traced his course to the river bank, near the ferry landing, where the ferry boat itself was tied up for the night. They concluded that the fugitive had a skiff tied there somewhere, which he intended to use in leaving the place, and, hurrying on board the ferry boat, they rapped loudly at the door of the little room on the upper deck where the crew usually slept, with a view of procuring means of following. The fellow who had charge of the ferry, a native of the lowlands lying across the river, was known as Young Bill Young, although he greatly desired that the people call him Old Captain Young. Therefore both men pounded vigorously on the door and loudly called Captain Young as a tribute to his vanity. Captain Young soon appeared, for he always slept in a bunk with his clothes on, which he said reminded him of his sea days, although he had never really seen any other water than that on which he operated his ferry. As the two hurriedly explained to him that they wanted a boat, young Bill Young went to the lower deck and unlocked one that floated at the stern, and soon Tug and his friend were pulling down the river with long strokes, for there were two pairs of oars. Occasionally they stopped rowing to listen, but nothing could be heard save the gentle ripple of the current, whereupon they worked with greater vigor than before. They had rowed in this manner for an hour or more, when, stopping to listen again, the plash of oars was indistinctly heard on the water ahead of them. Lying down in the prow of the boat, Tug could see the boat and its occupants low down on the water, between him and the first rays of light of the coming morning. There was a heavy fog on the river, which was lying close to the water, but this had lifted sufficiently to permit an inspection through the rising mist. There were two figures in the boat, one rowing, who was evidently the man they had twice seen looking in at them, and the other a much smaller person, who was seated in the stern and steering. This fact Tug regarded as so remarkable that he told Davy to lie down and take a look, and when Davy returned to his oars, after a long inspection, he said, "'I make out two. "'A big one and a little one,' Tug replied, bending to the oars and causing the boat to hurry through the water. "'Earn your supper up at the locks, and I'll introduce you to them.' On the left hand a smaller stream put into the main river, and at its mouth there was an immense growth of willows, besides a chute, an island, and a bend. Into this labyrinth the boat they were pursuing effectually disappeared, for though Tug and Silas rode about until broad daylight, they could find no trace of it or its occupants. A short distance up the smaller stream was a lonely station on a railroad that did not run into Davy's Bend, and while rowing around in the river, the roar of an approaching train was heard, and the fact that this stopped at the station, with a blast from the engine whistle indicating that it had been signaled, may have been important, but it did not occur to either Silas or Tug 
who pulled their boat back to town in silence. End of chapter 6 Recording by Roger Moline